You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 36, and this uh, episode covers the week of August 1st through August 5th, 2016. So, glad to have you back on the program. Uh, Quick reminder, your time to register for the conference on nullification, which is coming up um, next weekend, uh, August 13th, is running short. There's only a few days left. When you hear this, there'll be about three or four days left to register. So please, if you're going to register for the conference, do it now. Uh, Also, if you can't register for the conference and you can't make it, we do exist on your generosity alone. So please consider a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. Help us keep this podcast, the website, and programs like the conferences going. Uh, We need your help at all times, so uh, please consider that and uh, help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Okay, so we had a really great week at the Abbeville Institute this week. Uh, Some interesting articles, uh, and uh, again, they're they're a little bit eclectic. We do this often. There's no theme to this week, but uh, I think that uh, one of the things that's going to come out of it is a much more complex perspective of the South and how important the South is to the fabric of American history. And also, I think one thing we're going to get out of this is that um, issues that are often seen as black or white, uh, you know, so clear-cut by your mainstream historians, aren't so much. Uh, If you really dig deeper and look at the issues and the causes of things and uh, what uh, created many of the problems in the first place in American history. So, Uh, Let's get started. The first piece we had this week um, is entitled The Tariff and Other Tales from Alabama by James Rutledge uh, Roche. And um, this is a really good piece because what he does here in this particular piece, and of course he's written for us several times and does a great job. His articles are very well researched and uh, nicely written. What he does here in this particular piece is go after this idea that tariffs had nothing to do with Southern history, or opposition to tariffs, I should say, had nothing to do with resistance to the North. Um, This is a blatantly uh, false notion that has been perpetuated by essentially mainstream historians who want to pitch a certain narrative of the war. Uh, And uh, not long ago, there was a uh, daily show uh, with Jon Stewart. He, He had a panel of quote-unquote, mainstream historians opposing uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano on this particular issue, and they essentially ambushed Napolitano. And I wrote a piece for this, um, uh, well, this was a, a couple of years ago for, for the Abbeville Institute, and, uh, but <clears throat> what, what James does here is go after this particular position that tariffs had nothing to do with Southern opposition to the North, that it was all about slavery and only slavery. Now, if you read the Philadelphia Convention debates in 1787. You'll find that uh, people like George Mason were very suspicious about Northern motives uh, in drafting the Constitution. In fact, he wanted to prohibit what he called navigation laws, which everyone understood to be protective tariffs, essentially. He, he wanted to make it to where navigation laws were only possible by a two-thirds majority. So what he was trying to do in 1787 was ensured that the South would not be taxed out of existence. 
Because even in 1787, it was pretty clear that the South was going to be the agricultural section. The North was moving in a slightly different direction. Now, in 1787, there weren't large manufacturing centers in the North yet. Uh, They did exist primarily on commerce, uh, trade, shipping. Uh, But they were not, they were lagging behind the South in cash crops. And so the South was making money on tobacco and indigo and rice uh, and eventually cotton. And so these cash crops and taxing, having protective tariffs, which the South did not benefit from, were going to be a great boon to the North. And that's how it developed over time. Now, by the time you get to the 19th century, essentially 1816, you have your first protective tariff in American history. Um, you start seeing tariff legislation become a much more contentious issue in the United States, and the South begins to oppose it. Now, in 1816, John C. Calhoun, uh, for example, was in favor of the tariff because he thought it was a concession to the North. He thought that uh, the North, which had suffered during the War of 1812, deserved something back. And even that particular tariff was not as high as what you would have, say, in uh, 1824 or 1828, or 1832. So what this did essentially is start a cascading process by which the tariff is going to be uh, made a much more contentious issue, and it's going to get higher and higher as we move along. So what uh, James does here in this particular piece is examine the speeches from two Alex, uh, I'm sorry, Alabama. I was going to say Alexandria. Two Alabama congressmen, and this has to do with the moral tariff. Now, the moral tariff was passed just before Abraham Lincoln took office, and it was a very high protective measure. Now, it was blocked for a time by the South. Uh, And so these two uh, Alabama uh, congressmen, uh, Sydenham Moore and George S. Houston, George S. Houston, uh, by the way, became the quote-unquote redeemer governor of Alabama after the war was over, uh, they they had some very important speeches uh, against the tariff, um, and this showed that the tariff was a major issue, that it wasn't just some side issue that nobody thought about. In fact, uh, James does a very good job. He actually quotes Howard Zinn, uh, whose A People's History of the United States has sold, I mean, uh, over a million copies. I mean, it's the standard left-wing textbook on American history, and he quotes Zinn uh, in that particular book, Um, and uh, Zinn is a communist, but uh, he's very critical of Lincoln. This is what Zinn said, quote, behind the secession of the South from the Union, after Lincoln was elected president in the fall of 1860 as a candidate of the new Republican Party, was a long series of policy clashes between South and North. The clash was not over slavery as a moral institution. Most Northerners did not care enough about slavery to make sacrifices for it, certainly not the sacrifice of war. It was not a clash of peoples. Most Northerner whites were not economically favored, not politically powerful. Most Southern whites were poor farmers, not decision makers, but of elites. The Northern elite wanted economic expansion, free land, free labor, a free market, a high protective tariff for manufacturers, a bank of the United States. The slave interest opposed all that. They saw Lincoln and the Republicans as making continuation of their pleasant and prosperous way of life impossible in the future. So when you look at the Northern economic platform, it was simply the Hamiltonian system with the added uh, incentive of free land uh, 
to try to goad Westerners into supporting this coalition. And uh, Calhoun had recognized this long before this. He, he, he recognized that if the South did not maintain its close association with Western farmers, they were going to be doomed because the West was going to be brought into the orbit of the North, and that was going to make their, uh, their uh, position in the government tenuous. They needed the West. And you know, beginning in, in uh, 1794, Northerners started advocating secession. They did so in 1800. They did so in 1803 and again in 1815. And these two episodes are important for understanding the sectional conflict. Why they, why they supported secession in 1803 is because of the Louisiana Purchase. And at that point, the Essex Junto figured out that if they didn't leave the Union, 1803 brought in a whole slew of land, and they thought that all these new uh, states that would be created out of this land would be pro-South. These are farmers who are going to live out there. So the deep north, the New England area, wanted out. And it's very clear in 1815, when they have the Hartford Convention, why this was the case, because they saw themselves as a permanent political minority. If you look at what the Hartford Convention wanted, they wanted, for example, uh, a permanent rotation from, uh, for president from every other— you couldn't have uh, more than one term, and it had to be rotating from state. So you couldn't have two consecutive presidents from Virginia, for example. They wanted a two-thirds majority required to bring in new states, and they wanted to end the three-fifths compromise of the Constitution. If you look at those things, uh, that is definitely an attack on the, what they consider to be the southern stranglehold of the government. Looking back on it now, you wish the North had just seceded at that point because we would have had no war. They could have had their commercial area, and the, and the United States would have continued in the same direction it had been going in, which was a very prosperous area. You would have had no Bank of the United States, none of those things. So when you look at this debate in 1860 between the moral tariff, uh, tariff legislation is important, and uh, both Moore and Houston hammer Northerners over their protective position. So uh, in one particular case, uh, James goes on to say, Houston defended the classical liberal theory of free trade, which had taken deep root in the South due to a trade-based economy. And this is a quote from Houston. The true policy of the United States is to have its commerce as free as possible and unshackled as may be consistent with a proper revenue tariff. The trade of nations consists in their interchange of products, and such trade should be encouraged instead of restrained by an unnecessary duty. He goes on, uh, Who authorized Congress to say by law how much and what the people should wear or eat? That is their business to determine, not ours. So here we have Houston promoting what the United States was intended to be, which was a free trade zone. And again, if you look at this idea of regulating commerce, Roger Sherman of Connecticut said it best. What we want here essentially is commerce to be free over the United States. We don't want tariffs between states and all those other things that have been going on. We want a free trade zone. That's all they meant by that. They didn't mean to go out and jack up tariffs and regulate trade so that you're making some people rich at the expense of others. So, 
after the South starts to leave the Union, the moral tariff is passed. And then he goes into uh, talking about the Confederate commissioners that came from Alabama. So this is, a, this is an interesting story because a man named Charles Dew has made uh, quite a stink of this in his book, Apostles of Disunion. This is a thinly veiled polemic against what he calls neo-Confederate history. And it's a little tiny book, but I mean, it's, it's a very popular book. Uh, and he, he, what he does is go out and show that these commissioners from the South were invested in a quote-unquote apostles of racism, more like more accurately, uh, position where they were challenging uh, other Southern states to see because it's the only way to maintain whiteness, uh, this idea of whiteness now. But they talked about a lot of other things too, and so he cherry picks in this book. Now he does conclude the entire uh, speeches from some of these commissioners in the appendix of the book, but he does cherry pick quite often. And he does so with the commissioners to Delaware, uh, for example. But in this particular case, uh, James talks about some of these commissioners. So he says, The Alabama commissioner to Kentucky, Stephen F. Hale, recounted how the North had, quote, waged an unholy crusade against our lives, our property, and the constitutional rights guaranteed to us by the compact of our fathers. Hale then recounted how the South, by contrast, had not only, quote, freely conceded to the North her constitutional rights, protected the person and property of her citizens, and enforced every law of the Congress, but also, quote, submitted ever since the foundation of the government with scarcely a murmur to the protection of their shipping, manufacturing, and commercial interest by odious bounties, discriminatory tariffs, and unjust navigation laws, there's that navigation laws, passed by the federal government to the prejudice and injury of their own citizens. According to Alabama's two commissioners to North Carolina, Quote, the benefits that have been conferred upon them in the shape of tariff laws, navigation laws, fishing bounties, land laws, which are homestead laws, and internal improvement laws have been important aids to their mutual prosperity, a prosperity which is, in fact, to a great extent, the result of burdens upon the agricultural interests of the South. So they didn't talk about tariffs, eh? They didn't talk about this economic clash. Of course they did. Of course they did. They knew this was there. So this was an important idea. And James brings up the fact that Calhoun said this. This is a quote from Calhoun, speaking of this issue of tariffs. Quote, The case then fairly stated between us and the manufacturing states is that the tariff gives them a protection against foreign competition in our own market by diminishing in the same proportion, our capacity to compete with our rivals in the general market of the world. We are told by those who pretend to understand our interests better than we do that the excess of production and not the tariff is the evil which afflicts us. We will feel more disposed to respect the spirit in which the advice is offered if those from whom it comes accompanied it with the weight of their example. They also occasionally complain of low prices. But instead of diminishing the supply as a, rem as a remedy for the evil, demand an enlargement of the market by the exclusion of all competition. And 
He concludes, James concludes with this, The crisis of slavery was certainly the main, yet oversimplified and presentized cause of secession. Secession was not an act of war, however, and thus the cause of southern secession was not necessarily the cause of the war. In other words, why the South seceded was not the same as why the North invaded. While the South seceded to protect her way of life, of which slavery was the cornerstone, the North invaded not to abolish slavery, but to impose her agenda, of which tariffs were the cornerstone. Acknowledging the role of tariffs in southern secession and northern invasion does not require denying the role of slavery, just some historical context and intellectual honesty. So this was a very even-handed piece. And I think important for discussing this issue of tariffs. He's right. The war, what caused the war, is different than what caused secession. And secession had been openly discussed, north and south, for the entire 80 years of American history to that point, uh, under the Constitution. It was even discussed before the Constitution was written and ratified. People were talking about leaving the Union then. The Union wasn't working. So it's just amazing, and this is, this is getting into this idea of a nationalist myth, which I'll talk about in a couple of pieces. It's amazing how that narrative of slavery only and that nationalism was the dominant and most uh, enduring and uh, uh, idea of the antebellum South, that everyone was really a nationalist and that states' rights was kind of this fringe idea. It was the central idea. States' rights or the compact fact of the Constitution was the central idea of American history. All right, on Tuesday we published a little piece entitled The Unionist Davis versus the Radical Lincoln. And uh, this is by Bernard Thurzum, and it comes off his uh, website circa 1865. Uh, he points out quite clearly that Jefferson Davis was a conservative and that he was trying to save the Union. Uh, Davis was part of the Committee of 13, as was George S. Houston, by the way. Uh, and the Committee of 13 was determined to try to come up with a compromise proposal to save the Union. It's just that every Republican on the committee rejected it, and Davis wisely said, look, if we can't get any Republican support for any of these compromise measures, we're not going to let them go through. So the Crittenden Compromise, which would have passed probably 8 to 5, uh, Davis and Toombs switched their vote and made it uh, defeated it 7 to 6 because the Republicans wouldn't support it. And of course, Abraham Lincoln was telling his Republicans, don't support any compromise proposals. Uh, and of course, Davis was interested in saving the Union even before that. Now, Lincoln, who had made some speeches in the House of Representatives, was all for disunion. In fact, uh, he, he quotes uh, a speech from Lincoln in February 1848. Uh, he doesn't quote it exactly correctly. Now, this is not Thurzen. This, this piece actually came from the Southern Historical Papers. Lincoln had said something like this, quote, Every people who have the will and power for it possess also the right to rise, shake off their government, and establish a new one which suits them better. This is an invaluable sacred right which will at some time free the world. So that's not exactly what Lincoln said, but it's very close. Lincoln was in favor of secession in 1848, but he wasn't in favor of it in 1860. And so this piece from the Southern Historical Papers goes on. And who was this man who in a certain manner pressed into the hands of the southern states the right of throwing off a hated government? It was Abraham Lincoln. 
The one who praised and invoked the concord of union was, by his contemporaries, stigmatized as a traitor. The other, speaking about Davis, is esteemed and venerated today by many as a defender. I'm sorry. Uh, he's talking about Davis before then. The one who praised and invoked the concord of the Union was, by his contemporaries, stigmatized as a traitor. Says Davis, he supported the Union. The other is esteemed and venerated today by many as the defender and preserver of the Union. But Lincoln was for secession. And he also, this piece also points out that for a long time, the southern states, quote, had a greater aversion to slavery than the northern states. It was the South also which at first prohibited the slave trade, and Virginia at the head. When Jefferson Davis was born, the slave trade was in the hands of only northern merchants who had made terms with the slave planters of South Carolina. So this is an interesting tiny little piece to bring up some of the complexities of the antebellum United States and how 1860 and 1861 and how all that shook out. Um, you know, it was important to see that there was a tremendous amount of... of um, of, uh, as I said, complexity here that most people don't often discuss. Now, Wednesday. Wednesday, we had a really good piece by uh, the great Clyde Wilson, American Culture, Massachusetts, or Virginia. There was just too much in this thing to, um, to really do it justice in a short podcast, but you need to read it. This was actually one of Clyde's uh, talks at the 2016 Abbeville Institute Summer School, which we will have the videos and audio for that up. Not long from now, but you can see this particular talk. And he talks about how Virginia, Virginia was the embodiment of American culture. And it wasn't Massachusetts, but we've come to think that Massachusetts is the center of American culture, but it never was. And he goes back to the colonial period and how Southerners looked at the land and society in contrast to Northerners. Uh, in fact, Northerners looked at the land with foreboding. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It was this dark, scary place. Southerners looked at it as a, as a warm, inviting utopia, a place to have a good life. And Clyde goes on to say, uh, defining the South has long been a parlor game. True, what we mean by Southern is debatable ground. Some say it doesn't really exist. Some say it is no more than ordinary America with a particular racist nastiness. Because of a long campaign of cultural imperialism and the successful military imperialism engineered by the Yankees, the South, since the war to prevent Southern independence, has been considered the problem, the deviation from the true American norm. Historians have made an industry of explaining why the South is different and evil. For that which defies the American is, by definition, evil. Is the South different because of slavery, white supremacy, the climate, illiteracy, poverty, guilt, defeat, Celtic wildness rather than Anglo-Saxon sobriety? It is never asked, he says, what is actually wrong with deviating from New Jersey and Ohio. Why is it automatically and unquestionably defined as a defect in need of remedy by the superior Yankee? He says, 35 years ago, with useful presumptuousness, I ventured a definition of the South. Forgive me. I quote myself from 1981. I wrote, quote, The South is all around us. People all over the world are studying it as if it is a reality. It has arrested the attention of countless observers. 
It has provided a compelling means of identification for millions of people over many generations. I would define the South as an inherited way of life, expressed in a number of personally, I'm sorry, personality and cultural characteristics that are spontaneously shared by a substantial number of inhabitants of the United States. This way of life correlates with a particular history and geography, but has an independent existence. He says, in my opinion, the South has always been primarily a matter of values, of human attitudes and conduct, a particular repository of intangible qualities in a society particularly preoccupied with the material. That is what we mean by the Southern tradition. American society is in desperate need of those values. He says, it makes little sense to treat the South at any time before the war as deviant. In territory, population, political, and cultural influence, the South was a preponderant part of American development during all this period. Postulating a South to be explained as a deviation also leaves a standard of what is normally American undefined and undescribed. It is simply assumed without thought that the North came, that came to, into dominance in 1865 is a kind of universal and unquestionable norm against what, which everything else in the world is to be measured. And so what you have is the northern version of American history. And he gets into that. Uh-huh. He says, I saw a program about Washington's crossing of the Delaware in which George Washington speaks and acts like he was from Ohio and the heroes are troops from Massachusetts, which is a very incomplete story. And a docudrama about the plain Democratic John Adams has him anti-slavery in 1776 in contrast to a fought from South Carolina. The real John Adams wrote that Southern slaves were as well off as the lowest class of Northern workers, that the argument over slavery was about words rather than realities. And he told Jefferson late in life at the time of the Missouri Controversy He was willing to leave the issue of slavery entirely to Southern men whose concern it was. And in the noisy TV series, The Sons of Liberty, I do not think we'll ever see Sam Adams as a slave owner who brought his people with him when he came to Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence. He concludes his piece with this. The northern elite who dominate American society have no roots, which is why they can blithely ship American jobs and capital abroad for a marginally increased profit. They also have no real culture or religion. Thus, their natural human search for meaning makes them prey to ideological fads like the uh, rabid federalism of the early republic and the pseudo-religious abolitionist crusade. This has happened repeatedly in American history whenever the southern tradition has been weak. We had such a period of insanity known as the 60s. We are suffering through another regime of crazed abstractions right now, when our rulers live under the illusion that they can manage the earth and the fundamentals of nature, such as male and female, can be abolished at will. Until recent times, Southern Democrats filled the role of conservatism in the national agenda. Now there are no Southerners in Congress, only Democrats and Republicans. The South has become merely a rotten borough of both national political parties, and there is no preservative force left. But only the Southern tradition can provide the base to restrain these empowered destroyers of society. It is past time for the Southern tradition, the last best hope of America, to rise again. And that's what we're doing here at the Abbeville Institute and why pieces like this are so important. And why going to our summer school is so important and coming to our conferences is so important. This is the message you get 
and the internet allows us to level the playing field, so to speak. So this is just a wonderful piece, uh, highly worth your time to go out there and, and read it. We've talked about this difference between Southerners and Northerners quite a lot on this podcast and what the Southern tradition means and how important it is to the fabric of America, to our understanding of what America is and what America was, not what it could be, because it's not a utopian fallacy. It's based on concrete reality. The idea of progressives, and of course northerners, is to make an America which exists only in their head, in which they will never achieve. That's the difference. Southerners looked at things in concrete terms. They loved what they had, not what they could be. Now, they did view this land around them as a bounty to be used to improve their lives but they were going to do it through their own construct, their own culture, their own morals, their own values, their own religion, their own institutions. They were going to do it that way. And they didn't tell Northerners how to live. They just lived how they wanted to live. And I think that's the thing that people miss in American history. These abstract notions of what America could be or what it should be is is utopianism in its worst form. Because no one looks at what they have and say, this is good. This is good. I'm content. And I think one of the things that um, comes out of this, of course, as you move further and further to the left, and as you lose religion, then you have to move towards something like communism because you can't accept hardships and sorrow as a grand divine plan. Things happen. Bad things happen. There are bad people. There's evil in the world that has to be combated, yes, but not not in a crusade fashion. And you accept your plot and your plight because it's a grand plan, a divine grand plan. And I think it's hard for people without any religious basis to understand And that's the North over time. If you look at the sections today and where you have the most dominant forms of you know, religious theology, it's, it's still the South. So Southerners are willing to accept imperfect, imperfection rather than trying to achieve perfection all the time. All right. Well, uh, Thursday we ran a piece by yours truly entitled The Compact Fact. And this is a little review of a book by uh, a man named Aaron Coleman. Uh, and the book is The American Revolution, State Sovereignty, and the American Constitutional Settlement. I'm sorry, I said Aaron Coleman. It's Nathan Coleman, excuse me. Uh, Slip of the tongue there. Nathan Coleman, whose book The American Revolution, State Sovereignty, and the American Constitutional Settlement is excellent. Uh, This is an academic book, and it's, it's it's not a light read where you pick it up and finish it in a day, but it's an important addition to our understanding of American government. Uh, and I begin the piece by saying, you know, we have slogans, we have fads that are educated elites say are American history, and this is distorted American history. But every now and then, even in the academy, someone is allowed to run free, and that's what Coleman has done here. Uh, he begins talking about uh, how the states were the central part 
of American government, even when they were colonies, beginning with the Stamp Act crisis in 1765, and how you have this provincialism that uh, you know Benjamin Franklin talked about in 1754. The colonies were mutually jealous of each other. They had individual cultures, and they weren't willing to give that up to a national, quote-unquote, perspective. New England even had differences in itself. Rhode Island hated Massachusetts for good reason. Everyone hated Massachusetts. Uh, the royal governor of Massachusetts, Francis Bernard, thought that there should be a consolidation. That was the only way to enforce British or parliamentary policy was to consolidate the colonies because if you kept them apart, they would keep developing this provincialism that would um, turn into the decentralist nature of American government. Uh, in reality, what you have in, in this 10 years that lead up to the American War for Independence you have uh, a constitutional crisis where the colonies, including places like Jamaica and uh, Bermuda, they look at the uh, British Empire the way that the American states looked at the federal government. The central government in London was there to regulate trade, international trade, and defend these colonies, but nothing else. All other policies, whether it was monetary policy, trade policy, whatever it was, was handled by the colonies themselves in their local legislatures. That's essentially what we have with the U.S. Constitution. And so uh, Coleman does a nice job bringing that forward. He points out that the Constitution was a compact fact, not a compact theory. This is very important. Now, he doesn't use those words. Those are my words. But it's very important that we don't concede that we have a compact theory. We have a compact fact. Saying it's a theory opens the door to saying that there's something else there that doesn't exist. And he brings up several important uh, issues like the First Judiciary Act, Chisholm v. Georgia, Hamiltonianism, the Alien Sedition Acts, how all these things challenge this uh, decentralist nature of the Constitution. But at the end of the day, that decentralist idea ruled in the antebellum period, and it was only done in by the war, as uh, Coleman points out. So this is a very good book. It's expensive, unfortunately. It's, I think, $70. Uh, but it's an excellent book if you have the time. Pick it up but if you don't want to buy it. I'm sure, you know, get, get it at your academic library and read it uh, because it will give you tremendous ammunition uh, in, in talking about this compact fact of the Constitution. Finally, on Friday, uh, we did a, a, a little uh, interview that Alan Mendenhall uh published a couple of years ago uh, at his Southern Literary Review, which is a very good website. Um, it's a review of a book or an interview about a book entitled The Inside War. It's a novel by Robert Ernst. And um, there's a couple little nuggets in this review, this interview, I should say, that are important. Um, and Alan Mendenhall asked the author, there are some themes in the book that cover an aspect of the Civil War that is not often covered. Tell us about those. And so Ernst says, the tactic of bushwhacking or ambushing mountain patrols is one. Guerrilla warfare as a matter of accepted tactics was new and was a terrifying degradation of the morality of warfare. There was a real cultural divide among the citizens of western North Carolina between those who supported the North, the Tories, and those who supported the Confederacy. These divisions played out in many ways, most notably in atrocities like the Shelton Laurel Massacre, but more subtly in familial and neighborly relationships. I doubt many women suffered as did those in Appalachia from the depredations, theft, and physical threat of the men who populated the mountains during the war. 
I was surprised to learn of the inhumane prison conditions at Fort Delaware. Everyone knows about Andersonville, but not many are aware of Fort Delaware. We know of the great Civil War battles, but there were scores of skirmishes every week that terrified the contestants and shaped their perceptions. This is interesting, and I'm just going to talk about this one issue of Fort Delaware. Uh, Fort Delaware was a horrible place, and I can't remember the title of the book, but a few years ago, somebody had written a book about how ah, these northern prison camps weren't that bad. It was all fabricated by Southerners. But um, I don't think you can say that. I mean, you look at places like Camp Douglas, Fort Delaware, Fort Lafayette. These were, these were horrible places, and of course, you had political prisoners in these places. Uh, you know, and the fact is the Union had the means to take care of prisoners, whereas the South did not. And I think that's one often you know, lost component about uh, the war is the terrible treatment of Southern prisoners in Northern prison camps, how uh, they were starved on purpose, uh, they were disease-ridden, filthy places. Uh, they were denied, for example, in Kent Douglas, coats in the brutal winter of Illinois. They couldn't even get the proper materials to, to protect themselves from the weather. This was willful, inhumane treatment of people. Uh, at Fort Delaware, these men were, were uh, required to drink uh, mosquito-infested water. Dead bodies were stacked outside, and, uh, of course, that's going to create disease. Uh, I mean, this is uh, Fort Delaware was just a terrible place. Uh, and so you don't often have that narrative. Everyone focuses on Andersonville, how Andersonville is horrible was. And it was horrible. But they didn't have the means to take care of people, and the guards often had the same rations as the men inside the prison itself. And, of course, Lincoln stopped exchanging prisoners at one point, cut off the prisoner exchange. So uh, this, was, this is an often overlooked part of the war that's just horrible. And uh, these northern prison camps, uh, and I, I've, I've looked into this when I was writing my dissertation on James Byard. Uh, there were letters that were written uh, from citizens of Wilmington, Delaware, uh, to the government, urging them to accept humane uh, or humanitarian aid to these prisoners, and they were denied. They were denied. Uh, so uh, this, is, uh, this is a part of the war that's not often talked about. Uh, and this is a nice little, little uh, interview about this particular book. And, of course, you can uh, buy the book on Amazon. It looks like a really interesting read. I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's a really interesting read, a nice little novel, and um, uh, a nice addition to, uh, quote-unquote, Civil War literature. He also brings up the fact that the war produced this uh, tremendous push for literature uh, and uh, understanding who we are as a people and culture and other things. And I think that's, that's, uh, that is true. Uh, the war did produce that, ultimately. Okay, so don't forget, uh, we've got, again, we've got our conference coming up August 13th, 2016, Atlanta, Georgia. We hope to see you there. we only got a few days left to register for that conference. Please also consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. Help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Keep this podcast and these uh, website going. But until next time, good day. <laughs> <laughs>